Welcome to the Security Studies Podcast at Georgetown University. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeffrey Palmer, and for episode 41, I had my fourth annual discussion with Professor Bruce Hoffman on the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in 2019 and beyond. We open up reviewing 2018 to frame the discussion before going into some significant events of 2019. For example, we talk about the deaths of al-Baghdadi and Hamza bin Laden, the impact their deaths may have on their respective organizations, and the pros and cons of a decapitation strategy. We talked about the Islamic State's inability to reestablish a presence in Sirte, Libya, three years after its expulsion from its North African enclave. Then, going digital, we also covered the notion of deplatforming the Islamic State from social media platforms and the outlook of its propaganda machine as a result. While the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda suffered some significant setbacks in 2019, I asked Professor Hoffman about their successes over the past year. We covered their continued ability to conduct hundreds of simple and sophisticated attacks across the region, the prison breaks occurring in northern Syria as U.S. military withdraws from the area, allowing other actors such as Russia and Turkey to create more chaos upon which terrorist organizations thrive, and they're spread deeper into new areas of the sub-Saharan African region. Last but not least, Turkey has begun deporting foreign fighters back to their home countries, and the international community doesn't seem sure what to do about it. We cover a lot in this episode, so buckle up. I hope you enjoy this one with Professor Bruce Hoffman. I'm here with Professor Bruce Hoffman to discuss the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in 2019 and beyond. Professor Hoffman, thanks for joining me uh, for this podcast episode. Of course, I'm always delighted to. Uh, This is our fourth time meeting and discussing this topic. Uh, So a a long-term issue to be sure. Uh, But before we get into the substance, I wanted to talk about and congratulate you on the 25th anniversary of the... Uh, founding of the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at St. Andrews University, or the University of St. Andrews, excuse me. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. It's, uh, for me, when I co-founded it with Paul Wilkinson 25 years ago, more now than 25 years ago, um, you know, you never think actually of a legacy or of leaving something in place that you created and that has thrived. Now, admittedly, I left 20 years ago, so I have no credit for what's happened since then. But it's such an important important part of St. Andrews University's identity now, which is enormously rewarding, especially given that St. Andrews University is 600, over 600 years old. Yeah. That this is uh, as, such a prominent place. It has a worldwide reputation, um, and I think that it can s- succeed and has succeeded in this semi-rural corner of Fife, Scotland, is, pre- is pretty remarkable. I mean, St. Andrews is one of the most beautiful places in the world, and uh, every time I go back, I, I recall how much I enjoyed living there and how sorry I am that I don't live there any longer. Uh But it's complete antithesis of Washington, D.C. There's only three streets in St. Andrews. I think there's still only one stoplight, or maybe now there's a second one. Um, The streets are still cobblestoned. And, you know, for me, too, it's it's a great contrast uh, to Washington, D.C., where you have, you know, a very frenetic pace. But St. Andrews 
And it's, it's the kind of place where you can sort of step back and take a, a much longer and broader view of things. And that's why I think it's an ideal setting for the Terrorism Study Center and why this, the Terrorism Study Center has, has, has done so well there. Yeah, I was. I feel the same way. I was uh, granted the opportunity to study there in 2015. Um, that was at the time under Louise Richardson. Um, and it was re- remarkably different from not just the pace of Washington, D.C., but kind of the the approach to study. Uh, I felt it was much more academic um, and not in a good way or a bad way, but the approach was different, slower, more thoughtful and considered, um, and not uh, trying to keep up with policy mm. decisions r- real time. Uh, and I really enjoyed that that perspective. So it was good. Well, the inbox drives Washington. Yeah. And basically the coffee house and the pub drive St. Andrews. I mean, yeah. that's the difference is that there's the time to take what you've learned in the classroom um, and absorb through the reading and then to pursue and discuss it further. Oddly enough, I mean, I think in Washington, this is no one has the time to do this, but in more relaxed social settings. And it's hard to see people relaxing in Washington. We're all incredibly busy all the time. Yeah. yeah. And St. Andrews harkens back to a, another era in many respects. Well, congratulations. I know you are still involved uh, at the center. And so... Uh you do get some credit for the continued success of, of the center. And uh, it, it's a great place. So thanks for doing that. ISIS and Al-Qaeda in 2019. But first, I want to go review uh, kind of what we discussed last year. Uh, we talked about ISIS's territorial losses at the time. Um, Al-Qaeda, or at that time Jabhat al-Nusra's rebranding as a form of moderate extremism, possible outcomes of a uh, an Islamic State Al-Qaeda rapprochement or, or reconfiguration in their relationship, um, and even the challenges with jihadi propaganda censorship in democratic countries. In 2019... I kind of want to break this up into the pros and cons, starting with the pros. So in 2019, we've seen the deaths of leaders of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and Hamza bin Laden, the heir apparent to to um, al-Qaeda. Um, they, Zawahiri seemed to be at least uh, posturing that he would be taking an increasing role in their global organization. We've seen deplatforming from uh, Twitter and most recently, uh, with the help of Europol from Telegram, um, we've seen the Islamic State unable, seemingly unable, to reignite uh, in Libya, where they were evicted from Sirte mm-hmm. about three years ago. Maybe an area where we would expect to see them pop up again, but we haven't. Um, so I want to start, if I may with the the decapitation of their leaders, right? So what impact um, will the deaths of Baghdadi and Hams bin Laden have on their respective organizations? Well, I think the death of terrorist leaders or heir apparent is always hugely important and enormously consequential. But 
just as frequently overestimated or over-exaggerated. In that, removing them from the scene, of course, has an enormously disruptive effect on terrorist organizations, but there's a difference between a crush, a crushing blow and a fatal blow. And uh, that's, I think, how we have to look at it, is that this movement has gone beyond, the Salafi Jihadi movement, that is, has gone beyond any one person. And in Al-Qaeda's case, if the movement can survive the death of its founder and leader, and the father of, of Hamza can certainly survive the death of his son, who, even if he was heir apparent, his ascension to that role was still years off. Yeah. So I think symbolically it's enormously important in disrupting any succession plans that Al-Qaeda may or may not have had. And it's tremendously significant. But in practical terms, I mean, these groups have their own succession plans and substitutes for whoever might be eliminated, because after all, over the past 18 years, there have been lots of eliminations of leaders and potential leaders and of commanders and of those of their lieutenants who would fill their shoes. So they'll just carry on, I mean, at a different level. And that's not to say that these things aren't worthwhile and important. It's just to put them in a proper context that the same way the assassination of a head of state doesn't destroy that country or the elimination of a general doesn't result in the mass surrender or collapse of an army. We have to look the, we look at terrorist groups the same way and see it as a positive step forward and as making progress in the struggle against that terrorist movement or terrorist group, but not to over-exaggerate the implications or consequences is that, that this is some decisive turning point because like any organizational terror, like any organizational entity, terrorist groups or movements are in the business to survive. And they will adapt and adjust as best they can. And whether they're capable of adapting and adjusting is another story. But I think given the power of their narratives and the strength of their ideologies, at least in attracting disaffected, continuing to attract disaffected people, they will soldier on despite the loss of key leaders or heir apparent or heirs apparent. Yeah. Do you believe that um, the the newly deputized Islamic State leader uh, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi uh, will gain the credibility and status of caliph, uh, such as that of uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Does mm. it matter? Um, it, from what I'm hearing from what you just said, organizationally, they're fine. Uh, a leader is just that. Um and the, the the body, the organization will yeah. will continue on. Um. Well, I mean, change brings all kinds of opportunities, even to terrorist groups. And there's no reason to suspect that um, Al um, uh, Karashi might not even be a more effective leader, a quieter leader. I mean, sure. quieter leader, more deliberate, more thoughtful, perhaps than Al Baghdadi was, who was the archetypal blowhard and I think megalomaniac. I worry very much because Al Qureshi um, uh, is, is a survivor. I mean, that's the best way to describe him. He was a, a Baathist uh, member of the Baath Party in in uh, Iraq, so a secularist. Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. um, or at least in that context, he, I think he's also very adaptable. Um, he was an officer in the Iraqi army. Um, he was he did receive a um, an education in Islamic history at a religious college in Mosul. His father was imam of the Al Fukran Mosque in Mosul as well, so he was certainly steeped in um, in Islamic uh, tradition. 
and critically, at least as he as his name suggests, he claims uh, familial lineage with the family of the Prophet, which is exactly what enabled Al Baghdadi to have this enormous influence. But I think um, Al Al um, Karashi uh, is a may yet prove to be a more formidable opponent. He may be more measured and more strategic. I mean, he certainly has to be to have survived. I mean, he was captured what we know about him. He was born in 1976, captured in 2003 when he was fighting with Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Yeah. Um, imprisoned at Camp Bucca, for example, uh, escaped at some point. Uh, he's known within the movement as by two different monikers, the professor or the destroyer. So that suggests that he's someone who's both learned, but also <clears throat> highly lethal. And indeed, in um, Al-Qaeda, he was in charge of its um, fatwa and sharia sections, which shows some education and yeah. some theological and ideological acumen. But at the same time, in ISIS, he was in charge. He was the minister of IEDs, which is probably one of the most unique uh, bureaucratic uh, titles in the world. Yeah. He was also in charge of all suicide bombings carried out by the group and before his elevation um, was in charge of logistics. So he's someone in a, in a, from a military uh, perspective brings tremendous strengths that I'm not sure Baghdadi himself actually had. I mean, Baghdadi was a very effective terrorist, we know, and had a PhD in, in Islamic theology. So it was... was one might assume quite learned, but but um, Al Karashi uh, is someone who has a number of different skill sets and may have the um, quiet confidence to direct at least ISIS's survival at minimum, and that's probably all that the movement can ask of a leader right now. Yeah, yeah, without holding on to territory and unable to create new pockets and he may not have the ego or may have better sense and not position himself as the caliph uh, but will be content just to leave the organization his religious credentials are of course an an essential component of that and what about ayman al-zawahiri who is getting older and i feel like i say this every year um but al-qaeda must be thinking about who is on deck to take the lead strategically. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I mean, Ali Sufan of the Sufan Center recently wrote a piece where he said Abdullah Abdullah, who's currently hiding, allegedly hiding out in in Iran, who left Syria with Saifalatl, is being groomed or is the potential successor, which makes, to me, makes a lot of sense. But Al-Zawahiri, I think, has proven to be a highly effective leader of Al-Qaeda. I mean, he's kept it together despite uh, considerable um, um, upheaval generally, but also um, the challenge and the rivalry with ISIS. I don't think he's on the verge of surrendering any kind of authority or power, Um, but I think he understands that this struggle may go on and likely will go on beyond his life and I'm sure has thought of succession and who he would want a groom to succeed him. I was never completely convinced it was Hamza bin Laden, but Hamza bin Laden was always very useful as, 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 oh, a, yeah. figure, as a leading figure 
or to front the organization. I mean, his, his familial heritage, his own commitment to jihad was unquestionable. He was the only one of Bin Laden's children who wanted to stay with his father in November 2001 and not go into exile, Wanted to, even as an 11 or 12-year-old, wanted to fight alongside his father. So his backstory was ideal to at least, uh, at least for the story being propagated that he was the heir apparent. Uh, he would have certainly risen to some position of leadership in the organization, whether it would have been as a mir, we don't we don't know. But as a credible alternative, Abdullah Abdullah is pretty good, and this may explain why he's hiding out in Iran because this would be you know remove him from the maw of conflict and from the danger of being killed, as so many other Al Qaeda leaders or would be successors have been. Yeah, and even the Taliban as well. Uh, this somewhat of a decapitation strategy has not proven fruitful for destroying the organization. Well, correct. I mean, I have nothing against decapitation strategies, but I think that's just one component of a strategy. I think we've often made the mistake of seeing it as the be-all and end-all. We've been sorely disappointed. I mean, it has a critical role in counterterrorism, but it's only going to work if you're countering all the other arms of a terrorist operation. Yeah. Whether simultaneously or sequentially, but understanding that, uh, especially in the in the 21st century, and especially where we have been so successful in eliminating terrorist leaders, is that they have to have a succession plan in place because they know otherwise they won't survive. Yeah, it's true. Uh, speaking of new avenues for uh, counterterrorism, I want to move on to the idea of deplatforming. Um, from digital social media and chat chat groups. Um, do you believe deplatforming, such as uh, what we saw in Telegram recently, um, will effectively constrain um, the spreading of jihadist or, or um, extremist propaganda? Well, again, it's like leadership decapitation. It certainly disrupts. And it's certainly inconvenient. Um, and it certainly lengthens out the time frame of terrorists who have to compensate for it uh, in ways that they might not have expected. But in and of itself, these movements go beyond their ability to communicate over a specific social media platform. And they'll always find another one. Yeah. And this is part of, I think, of the perennial challenge. It doesn't mean that it's, it's not worthwhile to do, but we just have to have reasonable expectations that in and of itself, it's not going to end the threat or completely stifle their outreach. Do you have a sense, just even anecdotally, that it has gotten better? And what I mean by that is, you know, content uh, put out by the Islamic State is not as easy to come by? No, that's certainly true. And that does help because I think people who might have been susceptible or even amenable to their messages uh can't be reached as easily or with the same speed and rapidity as they might have been to establish a, you know, back and forth communications. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's certainly progress. But again, um, the permissive environment that, you know, led to 40,000 foreign fighters from 120 countries doesn't exist anymore. But then what you know if the new isis arose and seized on the next new thing technologically or in social media um would 
the advances that we see in our societies that make things much more convenient, could those not be used by terrorists to even improve on ISIS's success in that respect? So sure. we're constantly making progress. I don't think necessarily enough. And I think, oddly enough, it was nothing that the jihadis did, but it was the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand last March that had much more of an impact on social media uh technology giants in limiting access to these sites and especially uh, the threats of legislation in the United Kingdom and Australia and France and other countries that, you know, largely because of violent far-right extremism. Yeah. Um, and, and that's they're, another... They're the manifestos that usually right. accompany those attacks. I mean, that had more of an impact than anything from, from, from the Salafi jihadis. That said, too, I think recognizing the word jihad is something to be taken down is a lot easier than a lot of the violent far right or even far left extremist rhetoric, which is more difficult to identify and then to, to, to remove. So this is just, I mean, we just have to accept this as an ongoing process where we'll always be um, struggling to keep up, but the challenge is to keep up with the changes and with the evolution we see in terrorism and to be as adaptive as the terrorists are. But part of that is also realizing that the threat from terrorism is a perennial one. It's not something that stops with the killing of a leader or the taking down of a website. Sure. Yeah. Since the Islamic State has lost uh, its territory across Iraq, Syria, and Libya, and even other areas, uh, it seems to have been unable to really regroup or re-centralized uh, or settle in territorially, right? They're underground. Would you consider this a strategic success uh, in, in combating the Islamic State? I mean, a strategic success is when you end the war, not when you win a battle. We won a very significant battle. Sure. It took four years, too, against a non-state actor, and it was a coalition of 50, 79 countries, so we shouldn't... That's a good point. ...underestimate the challenges inherent in this, but... Um, Terrorism and territory have never been coterminous, and that uh, taking the territory away from a terrorist group without taking all of the territory away. I mean, my argument would be, yes, the ISIS center is much weaker, but the periphery is still you know, quite strong. I mean, over the past couple of years, ISIS has been adding new branches and spreading to new places, the Congo, Mozambique, the Maldives, Burkina Faso, I and mean, countries where they hadn't been in before. I mean, this is something that last year the U.S. Counter National Counterterrorism Strategy noted is that the caliphate was defeated, but they said, this is already 14 or 15 months ago, that ISIS had eight official branches and networks in two dozen countries, many of which had grown over the past four years, exactly while this while this international coalition that was unprecedented in history was arrayed against uh, ISIS or the, or the Islamic State. So ISIS, I think, in order to ensure its survival, and Baghdadi was quite clear about this going back to November 2016, um, was building up the periphery at the expense of the center and devolving more authority. So ISIS is still, you know, a thriving, um, a, 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 well, reasonably thriving in places, you know, um, especially in the Sahel, for example, um, you know, uh, Philippines, uh, 
It's been able to spread to other countries. It's waging an insurgency in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still is able to fight in Syria. Um, so on the periphery, well, so that's the center, but the periphery has become stronger, and it means that the elimination of ISIS has become infinitely much more complicated. And that's, I think, was a deliberate strategy of al-Baghdadi's to ensure the propagation of the movement. So the fight has shifted to a different domain, in essence. Um, it's a much more local or national one as opposed to regional, which was the the threat that the Islamic State itself and the caliphate presented. But, but the struggle continues. And even it had shifted continents, it seems, maybe not fully, but you see this... Uh, 80% of the countries you just listed were in Africa. Um, and don't get me wrong, there was all, already this kind of wave occurring in, in Africa, mm-hmm. specifically North Africa. But to mm-hmm. see new countries pop up uh, with an Islamic State presence in 2019, it is a very interesting concept. Well, I think it shows the resiliency of the ISIS brand. That's, you know, I, I mean, look at the, the attacks in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday yeah. uh, earlier this year. I mean, it precisely at a time when ISIS's star was falling, two hitherto unknown, obscure local groups decided to hitch their fortunes yeah. to what we thought was a falling star, and they were regarded as one that was still robust, robust enough and respectable enough for them to ally with and to... Um, basically hitch their fortunes to. Yeah. So I think this shows that the appeal of ISIS, even with the defeat of the caliphate, is diminished, but not undiminished. Yeah. And I believe over 230-some people were uh, were killed in that yeah, attack. Yeah, it was one of the most lethal attacks since, significant since 9-11. Attack. I mean, think about it. Uh, ISIS has fairly robust insurgencies today in Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, Afghanistan, the Sinai, and the Philippines. It has constant but more limited presences in Yemen, Libya, the Caucasus, the Sahel, has gained affiliates in the Congo, Mozambique, Kashmir, and Avaz, which is the Sunni area of uh, Iran. So it's, you know, we have defeated the caliphate and we've eliminated its rule over a sizable amount of territory, but that's not the same as defeating an ideology or or effectively countering an idea. And unfortunately, the ideology and the idea live on and still serve as a focus and a rallying point for individuals who, on top of whatever ideals the Islamic State propagated, now embrace revenge and retaliation as equally important motivations. Yeah. I read recently the the press release put out by... I think it was Amak News Agency, which is an Islamic State-affiliated news agency. It was an infographic published in the summer, and it said in the first half of 2019, they had conducted over some, I think it was 1,800 attacks. Um, and it was, it, whether credible or not, um, what I really want to focus on is the ratio, because in order by number of the attacks that they claim, it was Iraq, Syria... Afghanistan, and then Egypt was in the hundreds, and it was the fourth most. And that really stood out to me. I, I knew things were occurring in the Sinai, uh, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Um, so that was really you know, interesting. The, the, their insurgency in the Sinai, or their, the Sinai branch, is extremely active, and the Egyptians have 
really been challenged in trying to suppress it, which in and of itself is significant because the Sinai is a fairly controlled space. Oh, yeah. It's also fairly barren and uninhabited. There are population centers, and even those population centers aren't very large. Uh, the Egyptian government these days operates with fewer constraints than many other countries do in their counterterrorism uh, programs. And I mean, just as that, that, that those figures uh, depict, I mean, ISIS is still a viable enterprise in the Sinai, which I think underscores the resiliency of its uh, of its uh, of its brand and uh, the continued attractiveness of its stature. So I think I got a little bit ahead of myself because I was still trying to focus on the pros of 2019, but we slid into the cons and that's perfectly fine. Um, but I do want to highlight uh, some additional topics. One, uh, the U.S.'s perhaps hasty withdrawal from northern Syria, um, producing new jailbreaks, uh, which is reminiscent of uh, Iraq in 2011. So I wanted to talk about that. Um, new players in the area, specifically Turkey in the north, Russia gaining more prominence, uh, Iran, of course, uh, messing around in Iraq, as usual. Uh, conditions that allow for the resurgence of terrorist organizations. Mm. Chaos. Um, I was going to mention an uptick in violence in uh, Burkina Faso in new areas such as Mozambique, uh, which is in southeast, so different areas of, of the continent. Uh, and Turkey now promising to send f to, to um, send foreign fighters home to uh deport them to their their home countries so i want to talk about the jailbreaks first and i want to get your perspective on what you perceive the gravity of this is the consequences that may arise what's your take well even before the jailbreaks just having seventy thousand women and children imprisoned in abject conditions for an indefinite period of time. If you want to talk about a justification and motivation for continued terrorism and for the longevity of ISIS, we've created that own situation ourselves. Yeah. Then roll into it the withdrawal of U.S. forces and the pressure that's been applied to the YPG by Turkish forces. Um, the idea that there are going to be jailbreaks, uh, that the security of these places, which were already in pretty bad shape to begin with, is just going to t deteriorate. I mean, you know, we're creating once again, a, if not a generational struggle, but at least we're, you know, completely vitiating all the success that we've had in recent years. Um, and it's, it's, it's fundamentally troubling because the more modest efforts that we were engaged in, modest by, I mean, smaller, much smaller numbers of U.S. troops yeah. positioned overseas. I mean, we've understood now, um, as we approach the, uh, the, the um, third decade of the war on terrorism, that invading and occupying countries doesn't work. And I thought we had found the, the most sensible approach and the right balance in positioning highly elite special operations forces, as well as uh, uh, intelligence assets and logistical support in much smaller numbers in key conflictual areas was a way of enabling us to work through, by, and with our local allies to counter threats that we don't want to once again resurface and emerge to become uh, threatening to the United States. But 
this has worked enormously effectively in recent years, but for some reason now we, we've decided that uh, we don't need this anymore. And, you know, terrorists are always opportunists and they look for opportunities when their opponents become complacent or when they ease up on the pressure that they've applied to terrorist groups. So um, I think we've, t- we've, t- we've done a number of, uh, of, of things in the U.S. that risk really vitiating the progress we've made against ISIS in recent years and giving them that, 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 that opening or that space that they need to regroup and reorganize and also the justification and motivation to carry on their struggle. And not only with the U.S. withdrawal, but the welcoming, not welcoming, the addition of new players, um, Turkey, for example, what is your take on the region right now? I know this is a complicated question, but it's an important one. I think whenever the U.S. has outsourced its security in terms of counterterrorism, we've often been both sadly disappointed and become, once again, uh, threatened by terrorist adversaries, um, even when we've had very reliable partners. So I think without some U.S. presence and U.S. oversight and hands-on U.S. involvement, um, we, you know, we, we, we just put ourselves in a position of not really being in control of threats that can, unfortunately, as we've seen repeatedly over the past 20 years and more, that in a very short space of time can gather momentum, can grow and become much more consequential. So, uh, you know, all these things, you know, um, degrade the immediacy of U.S. involvement, which means we have less warning time yeah. and less understanding of the dynamics on the ground that could produce new terrorist threats or heightened terrorist threats that are somehow rejuvenated. At the same time, the United States has been at war in Afghanistan for 19 years, 18 years. America's longest war by far now. It was America's longest war a few years ago. I think the fact that we are at war is drifted away from the American conscience, uh, conscious, I guess. And there's a sense of fatigue, like, I don't want to talk about it or think about it. Why are we still there? There's a sense of frustration here. How do you reconcile this idea that the U.S. needs to have a presence in terrorist hotbeds like Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. But also this important notion that people don't want to be stuck in a forever war. Well, I mean, it would be one thing if we still had 100,000 troops there. We have a yeah. fraction of that number now. So there's always this question in counterterrorism, how much is enough? Sure. And you're always striking a balance depending on what the threat is. But I'm not sure that the more modest levels of troops that we've had now, um, you know, are, are inappropriate. Um, you know, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, the interest that we've paid on the money that we've devoted to the war in Afghanistan has been astronomically high because um, we've had to take out loans to pay for it. But at the same time, um, we know that al-Qaeda remains close with the Taliban. We know that, I would argue, one of al-Qaeda's Achilles heels is that they have this nostalgic attachment to Afghanistan 
that goes against any logic. I mean, I I don't think that Al-Qaeda is going to ever be able to recreate bases in Afghanistan to launch attacks against the United States like they did on 9-11. You don't think so? I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that we have that it's not worth fighting against a resurrected Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan for two reasons. First, our precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan plays right into an Al-Qaeda narrative that Bin Laden himself articulated on the eve of the 2004 presidential election. In, I think it was October 30th, 2004, when he said, we know we're not going to defeat you militarily, but we're going to enmesh you in a war of attrition. We're going to bankrupt you, which... This, a lot of this debate is about the, the, the large financial cost. We're going to send your soldiers home in body bags to undermine the morale and the commitment to prosecute this war, which many people have argued that the 2,400 deaths in, in, of service personnel in, in Afghanistan have demonstrated that. And then he said, and just like we set in motion the chain of events uh, that led to the withdrawal of the Red Army and then the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the demise of communism, this is how we're going to destroy America. I don't think that's at all true. and But that's the point. Propaganda doesn't have to be truthful. It just has to be believed and it just has to fit into a narrative. Al-Qaeda had a very minor role in forcing, if any, in forcing the Red Army out of Afghanistan in 1989. But it doesn't matter. If it fits the story, um, they will run with it. So they will be able to claim that they defeated the armies of two superpowers in Afghanistan. And if I wanted to think of some way to give al-Qaeda a shot in the arm and rejuvenate its own brand, this would be an absolutely critical one. But, all right, this is the war of ideas, and we don't know which way it will go. And, you know, depriving them of a narrative may not be the best reason to uh, fight al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The second reason is because I think, whether it's al-Qaeda or ISIS, their new strategy in response to the success of our countermeasures. I mean, they didn't adapt a new strategy just because they wanted to. They had to because of our successes. But their new strategy basically is to use their local affiliates or franchises or branches to undermine the stability of individual countries and then of regions. And then they hope that that will eventually come together and create some sort of a conflagration that will spread across borders and that will enhance their fortunes. And... I mean, I take that quite seriously, and I think that there is still a good reason of uh, for preventing the spread of, of both al-Qaeda and ISIS from bases of operations, such as Afghanistan, among other places, would, would be. So I think, um, of course, we have to be realistic and, you know, reforming and change. In my view... Going to Afghanistan was never to reform and change Afghanistan and make it a thriving market economy and, and democracy. It was to prevent terrorists from ever getting a foothold there or using Afghanistan both physically and virtually as a platform to assail us. And I think that still holds true. Again, we have to have levels that are appropriate to the threat and you know, as I said, there's a fraction of what was once the height of U.S. forces there. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue creative alternatives, including negotiations with the Taliban if they can, if, if they're Which are know, on place, our terms. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I mean... Back you, on the table again. We should always be looking to divide our enemies and to provide off-ramps from terrorism. But we have to do so prudently and with, I think, realistic expectations and not show our hand and be so anxious 
for a settlement that it puts us in a weak bargaining position. Yeah. What is your take on the current relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State? Still in a period of estrangement. Yeah. But, you know, nothing necessarily lasts forever. I mean, um, Al-Qarashi um, started out in Al-Qaeda. Uh, he was had senior positions in charge of their fatwa and sharia branches, which means he's very well versed in Al-Qaeda's ideology. As a former Ba'athist and member of the Iraqi army and former prisoner at Camp Bukha, he's an absolute survivor. Mm -hmm. And to be a survivor, you've got to be enormously practical. So if he saw that it was in ISIS's interest to reamalgamate or at least enter into some strategic cooperation or alliance with Al-Qaeda, I have no doubt that he wouldn't undertake it. Um, again, the, the intense personal enmity was something between al-Baghdadi and al-Zawahiri. I'm not sure that it's necessarily shared by other members of ISIS, right. or it was shared by other members of ISIS, like Muhammad al-Adnani. I mean, key figures in the 2014-2016 period, but we killed them all. So we've eliminated most of the most implacable opponents right. of amalgamation or negotiation or some relationship with al-Qaeda. So if ISIS's survival becomes dependent on some modus vivendi, uh, they would embrace it at what level i mean it may not necessarily have to entail reunification yeah um but i think it's an enormously fluid environment where al-qaeda through horus al-din in syria is working to mend relations and build um new relationships with a variety of disenfranchised jihadi factions there to begin with yeah so including you know including if they if they can if they can mend fences with uh, with Hayatariyar Asham, it's not such a huge stretch to do so with ISIS as well. Do you do you perceive that this splintering of jihadist organizations in the region weakened Al Qaeda in any sense? I'm oh, it of... certainly weakened them. But I think this is the problem: is that you know Zawahiri and Bin Laden even a decade ago took the strategy that Baghdadi adapted, which is understanding that you had to strengthen the periphery in order for the center to survive. Yeah. And that meant ceding some control. Yeah. And inevitably that means some splintering. Yeah, is that the of idea? course. Yeah. I think it's more to Al-Qaeda's credit that they that they have this position now in Idlib that, I mean, credit in a very nefarious way. Yeah. But that they've worked now to attempt to unify these groups. They haven't given hopes of, of achieving some um, modicum of trust between once estranged adversaries. But you have to understand, all of them have an identical ideology. All of them subscribe to the ideology of, of Ibn Tamiyah, of Abdullah Azam, as articulated by bin Laden and even al-Zawahiri. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the same. The means to achieve it is what's often being different. And then the personal rivalries that one sees in any movement that's dependent upon both charismatic and effective leadership or, or one or the other, perhaps. Uh, so, you know, none of this is terribly surprising. Now, it may be that these divisions never heal and the factionalization just deepens. But we also have to be prepared that the opposite can happen. We don't know the outcome, but we shouldn't assume that any of these things are permanent. I mean, terrorist groups, by their very def definition, have to be revolutionary. They're about achieving rapid change through violence or the threat of violence. And if they can't do that, then they're not going to survive. So that's why 
in what is an enormously fluid and dynamic process in Syria, we have to be uh, we have to be cognizant of all variations of a variety of outcomes. Yeah, I believe you said that there had been forty thousand foreign fighters that were injected into the region, roughly. Many of those have been killed. Many of those have gone underground, but or, or, or been imprisoned. Um, and very many, uh, very few have made it back home. But for those that are in prison, and Turkey is threatening to uh, deport them back to their their countries of origin, how are countries dealing with the idea of receiving known? Um, Islamic State supporters or, or uh, residents, um, how are different countries reacting to this concept? They're not. It's wishful thinking. Uh, they're never going to have to deal with this problem because they have no idea what to do with them. They can't try them in courts because they don't have the evidence to convict them. Or even if they do, it's often circumstantial or hearsay or derived from very sensitive intelligence methods and sources that yeah. can't be revealed in court. So it's the problem that everybody wishes will go away, but it's not going to. It's just going to get worse. So does Turkey still deport? I, I well, Turkey has already deported about 5,000 to other countries in recent years and not, not told anyone that they either deport where they deported them or the countries of their origins. So this problem has already manifested itself. It can only get worse. Will Do you think that laws will adapt to accommodate this problem or are they kind of let go back well, into society once there's some horrific act of violence that yeah. they've committed then there'll be a reaction it'll yeah. probably be an overreaction based on past history but um and we saw that in in london this was not an individual who had gone to iraq or syria but uh who had been imprisoned in the uk uh for uh, plotting to attack the london stock exchange in 2010 that's right and got out early Right, because he told good his jailers what, what they wanted to hear. Which... And uh, went on just a few months, last month maybe, to um, stab people yeah. in, uh, in London. Well, it never reformed or was never rehabilitated. So if someone like that, who also spent several years in British prison where he was, in order to be released, he had to participate in quote-unquote de-radicalization, whatever that means, um, never disengaged, which I think is the, it's the much more crucial concept here. Um, so why should we think, you know, in those, I would say, much more challenging circumstances, yeah. why should we expect the foreign fighters to have changed it all in terms of the motivations that originally drew them to the Islamic State or to not feel the desire to exact revenge for the caliphate that they see as being destroyed? Yeah. So, you know, uh, we're sitting on a ticking time bomb because yeah. the international community, and particularly the West, hasn't been able to come together and consensually resolve this. I mean, it was great we had a 79-country co coalition that, that defeated the caliphate. Yeah. But that 79-member coalition has not been able to produce a blueprint of how, just like the invasion of Iraq, the phase four, the next phase after the fighting, what do we do? And we're, we're back to a decade ago. So yeah. we, in a, in a way, we're falling into this the trap set by bin Laden or set by terrorists and insurgents throughout history, which is basically, you know, to drive their opponents to fight the same wars over and over again and eventually just to wear down their resolve. Yeah. 
and defeat them through wars of attrition. Unless they're absolutely and finally crushed. Right, or I was I thought you were gonna say, <laughs> or unless the international community can come together in some cooperative sure. fashion and come up with a comprehensive plan to address this problem on the multinational level that it needs to be addressed on. Yeah. I was thinking of the uh, the case study of the Tamil Tigers, right, where it just took an absolute obliteration uh, to, right. to take them out. But, I but don't also mean to... allegations of war crimes of course, and of course. tremendous number of civilian right. deaths and also preventing the media from having any window into what was going on. I mean, yeah, there is a military solution to, to, to terrorism, but it's not it's one inhuman, that Western inhuman. liberal democracies yeah. can embrace. I want to pivot slightly um, and talk about the recent attack at the... Uh, Naval Air Station Pensacola in Florida, where a Saudi gunman uh, opened fire and killed three. Um, I believe the site intelligence group found that the shooter had produced a tweet, uh, and it was essentially a quote or paraphrasing uh, some of Bin Laden. Mm -hmm. Can you share your perspective on, on this attack and what we should think about it? Well, again, it constantly shows the evolution of, of, of terrorism in this process of radicalization that that becomes very, especially in lone individuals who are in place to detect and interdict and, pre and prevent. So we have no idea why this individual uh, who was in the Saudi military, the Saudi Air Force, uh, who obviously would have been very heavily vetted before he, he was sent to the United States on this two-year training mm -hmm. program, you know, what caused him to change while he was over here? What was the precipitating factor? What were the influences on him? I mean, we still have absolutely no idea. Yeah. But uh, especially when firearms are more or less readily available, um, someone, the barriers, or on a military base, uh, you know, it, it, which you would think would be very secure, but nonetheless, if you have... Uh, a firearm that's not allowed to be on the base smuggled smuggled in by someone who's coming every day. You can see that the result is a, is, is is the tragic events, which resulted in the deaths of three uh, three U.S. naval personnel, tragically and senselessly. Uh, but it once again, I think, underscores how terrorism is constantly changing and how the threats progress in directions that often we can't anticipate, and um, how groups that we think may have, like Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden, have outlived their relevance, still have an enormous, one could argue, even a magnetic appeal to certain types of individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, still awaiting more information. I think we're just days out of the attack today, but um, uh, kind of a, a new take, it feels like. Um, well, I mean, we've had blue-on-blue -blue attacks you know, or, or green on green, as they're also called in Afghanistan, yeah. um, in the past fairly frequently. But that was in war zones. It's very different when it happens in the United States. And I think shows that much as we may wish that uh, after two decades or nearly two decades that we've reached or we're reaching the end of the war on terrorism, it's constantly mutating and evolving into new, more pernicious forms. Yeah. So, 
Uh, actually, what has the U.S. and its allies done well or poorly against the Salafi jihadi terror threat in 2019? Well, I think what we've done well is that the U.S. national counterterrorism strategy released by the NSC in the White House last year was a, uh, in 2018, which obviously guided our efforts this year, proved to be an enormously prescient and important document in the sense that it identified far-right uh, violent extremism as, as a threat, far-left violent extremism, because, of course, there was the... Uh, firebombing of, uh, of, of uh, an immigration and customs enforcement facility in Spokane, Washington, uh, this past summer that represented perhaps uh, an aberration, but nonetheless an escalation of political violence. Um, the anticipation of single-issue types of terrorists, such as incels and voluntary celibates. So, you know, it, it was, I think, an enormously useful doc document laying out the array of threats the United States um faces. Uh, Department of Homeland Security just this past September issued their own counterterrorism strategy, which reflected very much that document and also highlighted this uh, really panoply of threats. But I mean, what we've seen is that terrorism hasn't gone away. But whereas we had, I use this, 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 this term in quotes, the luxury for the first decade and a half of the war on terrorism, basically of fighting one group which was Al-Qaeda, we saw how five years ago that changed and it was Al-Qaeda and that ISIS had become even more threatening. And now we see an entirely bewildering array of additional adversaries at a time when great power competition, um, cyber warfare, uh, information operations, manipulation of our elections. In other words, where the, um, where the amount of national security threats is multiplying rather than decreasing, risks elbowing terrorism out of the way, whereas I would argue that we unfortunately have to be able to cover the waterfront against all these threats to national security. And the problem with terrorism is that more people, it seems, or more movements, more diverse movements are embracing terrorism or at least seeing terrorism as a solution to their own uh, their own grievances, grievances or what they sense their uh, political disenfranchisement or disempowerment. Um, so I think we've been right in recognizing and, and identifying the trends and developing a very, on paper, effective strategies. But of course, the strategy is only as good as its implementation. Yeah. And that's where I think we understand much more so now than we did at the beginning of the war on terrorism. Now there has to be a whole of government response and that the non-kinetic uh, initiatives are just as important as the kinetic ones and that it, this isn't something we can bomb our shoot our way to victory to. But what we see is that there's still a disproportionate amount of resources that is very focused on kinetics and less so on non-kinetics. And it's getting that balance right, which the strategies call for, that still remains elusive. And perhaps is more challenging now because of this diversity of, 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 of additional threats that we have to um, prioritize or at least allocate resources to yeah and what is your overall assessment and outlook for each organization that is the islamic state and al-qaeda well they've suffered enormous setbacks but none of those setbacks has as yet proven decisive in ending their struggles which means we have to continue to struggle to counter to contain and to suppress them
thank you so much for joining me on this. I have one last question to ask you, uh, and uh, hopefully you're expecting it. Uh, What is the greatest threat to U.S. national security today? I think I'm I'm going to say the same thing as I recall I said a year ago. It's it's our own divisiveness and the polarization within the United States polity. You know, when I teach my classes, I talk about what seems a halcyon time when there was bipartisan consensus on both national security and foreign policy. Uh, And that seems to have completely eroded, which I think uh, weakens rather than strengthens the United States. And even if it had, I mean, not weakens it necessarily in a in a physical sense, but invites the interference or in, encourages the doubts of our adversaries that we can be effectively challenged, and which then in turn puts more pressures and more resource strains on us. So that's that's what that's what I think the biggest threat is. Thank you again for joining me on the podcast, not just tonight, but uh, over the past uh, few years. Uh, I've always enjoyed our conversations and appreciate your time. Well, it's always been a great pleasure. The Security Studies Podcast is hosted at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. For more information, go to css.georgetown.edu. Thanks for listening.